I'm John Moe. This week on Home Dunk, we're going to talk to Sean Doolittle, pitcher for the Oakland A's, closer for the Oakland A's, and we're also going to learn all about guys who are assholes. I hit a home dunk. I wish that you had shown up. I played over my head. Everything was off the charts. I jumped out the gymnasium and knocked it out the park. Did a handstand, hit a grand slam, it was a great day for the fans, man. I got three sacks and broke three bats. I gave the crowd money plus free snacks. I did a hat trick and a backflip. It's on ESPN Classic, and you weren't there, and it hurt me to watch them retire my jersey. I hit a home dunk. Thank you, Open Mike Eagle. I hit a home dunk. I hit a slam run. I did all those things. I hit a goal on Love 40 or so. I'm John Moe. This is Home Dunk. This is a show for uh, for the self-loathing sports fan, uh, for the fan who likes to make jokes, for the fan who... Uh, who thinks like I do. And if you do, I'm so very sorry. But let's talk about sports, and maybe that'll make everything okay. So on this program, we're going to talk to the closer for the Oakland A's, who pitched in that one game against the Kansas City Royals that his team didn't win, and uh, the Royals then advanced to the World Series. And we're going to find out how he's dealing with all that, and uh, we're going to talk about his beard, and we're going to have a good time. Later, we're going to talk to Aaron James, who is the author of Assholes, A Theory, which is a book all about assholes, and that's on our minds because of the Seattle Seahawks trading Percy Harvin and uh, apparent other strife within the defending Super Bowl champions dealing with guys who sounds like are assholes. All right. This isn't a radio show. It's a podcast. Asshole, asshole, asshole. La, 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 la. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about football and baseball, but I'm also thinking about basketball because the NBA season is kicking off and is kicking off without Steve Nash. And I'm sad because of that. Because Steve Nash, I've been following, I realize I've been following Steve Nash in some capacity for 21 years now. That's a lot of Steve Nash. And it goes back to 1993 when his Santa Clara University basketball team, the number 15 seed in their bracket, defeated the number two seed Arizona Wildcats. Superstar Arizona team. It was a shocking game. And the, the Santa Clara was led by freshman Steve Nash. I was watching this YouTube clip of this game just this morning. And dude weighs like 90 pounds and he's got acne and he's just, he looks, he looks 12, the poor darling. And he's just lighting it up unconscious, just in the zone, sinking free throws, hustling, doing everything you need to do, clearly just starving for the ball, wanting to get the ball in his hands and will his team to win. And Steve Nash, like that, that's when I first became aware of him. Like, who is, who is this? There's always one of these kids in the tournament, like just playing out of his mind. And even back in 1993, and I was, I was young back then. <laughs> I was an adult. I was a young adult. And, uh, I used whatever resources I had. This was pre internet, at least pre me getting to the internet. I did everything I could to read up on this guy because I was fascinated. And I found out that he was from Victoria, 
which isn't just Canada, but it's like super Canada. It's it's a city. It's a tourist city on Vancouver Island. It would never even occur to me to have sports, any athletes coming from Victoria. And so he gets recruited there. The only school he got recruited to goes on and like wins all these games, gets a degree in sociology, sociology, and then gets picked in the draft goes to Phoenix, gets picked 15 overall, and is stuck behind Kevin Johnson and Sam Cassell, who looks like an alien baby, and Jason Kidd. All these players, uh, Steve Nash can't get any playing time. And so I, I keep watching this guy as he becomes a pro because there's something I'm starting to really identify with. I mean, geographically, we're from the same part of North America within not too many miles of each other. And by all accounts, he's a very thoughtful guy. He's pensive, and he doesn't really fit in with uh, the bodies in basketball. He's maybe six feet tall, generously, and uh, you know, there's he's a, a misfit. And haven't we all felt like pensive misfits, especially people who listen to podcasts host by, hosted by public radio hosts? I think so. So, I I just felt an attachment to Steve Nash as a fellow pensive misfit. And then he was in the NBA and then he couldn't get any playing time. And a couple of years later, he went to Dallas and all of a sudden everything bloomed for him. And I felt so good for him. He made a friend. He made a friend in Dirk Nowitzki and, and they flourished and they were happy together. There was all this stuff of, of them hanging out together and, and being pals. And it was just inspirational to me. Like this pensive misfit from Victoria it's like being from Disneyland. Like if Disneyland and England combined into one city, that would be Victoria, British Columbia. And he goes and, and then he's in the NBA and he's flourishing. And and so that's inspirational. Then he returns to Phoenix. He leaves Dallas to sign a better free agent contract. He does what's best for him. He takes more money because that's the cold, hard reality of adulthood. So following Steve Nash was no longer about uh, – overcoming your pensive misfit roots and going into this new place. Now it was about reality and, and getting older and making the, the hard decisions to leave your friend Dirk Nowitzki, as we all must leave our own personal Dirk Nowitzkis behind sometimes and return to our own personal Phoenix Sunses. And he goes there and he wins two MVP awards, back-to-back -back MVP awards, which I still don't think he probably deserved, but everybody loved Steve Nash. And, uh, and you know, then he goes to the Lakers. He goes to the Lakers, and uh, then things fall apart. And I think, the, I think the Lakers just represents death to me. Because in the symbolic arc of, of Steve Nash, there's the origin story of Victoria and Santa Clara University. And then there is the, the young adulthood of the Phoenix Suns. Then there is the apex of adulthood as Dallas Mavericks and Phoenix Suns. And then there is the slow descent and he rots as all things do all must decay. Steve Nash reminds us physically as he sits out the upcoming NBA season and is probably done for good in his career. And I'm talking about him now as if he's dead. And I do think that is interesting in sports because as soon as somebody retires, they kind of become sports dead to us. You know, we we remember Donovan McNabb. I I bring this up as an example because Corey, our engineer, is a Philadelphia Eagles enthusiast. And 
I don't remember. I can't imagine Donovan McNabb walking around now doing things. He's dead. He's a dead guy. And <laughs> and that's how it is with with athletes. And uh, and so Steve Nash, you know, I guess I'm I guess I'm doing an obituary. I didn't set out to do an obituary on Steve Nash, but there it is. Rest in peace, the Steve Nash I wanted you to be. And good luck in your birth, the Steve Nash that comes after basketball. I did a home dunk. We talk a lot about baseball uh, as a society and as people and even on this show, but I don't really know what I'm talking about when it comes to baseball. It's just something that I watch. Uh, One person who does know a lot more about baseball than me is Sean Doolittle. He's the closer for the Oakland A's, and he's with us now. Hey, Sean. How are we doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, how are you doing? Are you uh, have you been watching the World Series, or as a is that just a busman's holiday, or too painful, or can you just not do it at all? Um, you know what? Uh, after the season ended, um, I definitely uh, needed a break from baseball, and you know now that uh, it's kind of far enough removed from when our when our season ended, um, and I guess you know unfortunately how it ended. Um, you know, I'm, I'm back in a, in a better mental state and, uh, started watching the World Series again. And, um, it's been an incredible series to watch. It's been a lot of fun to, to keep track of. Well, you, you talked about recovering. How you pitched in the, the wild card game against the Royals. It didn't go well. Your team lost. How do you bounce back from something like that? Do you wait it out or is there therapy? What, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, looking back on it, um, it was a game that, um, it didn't go our way as a team and my outing didn't go, you know, the way that I had expected it to go. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't due to, um, a lack of preparation or a lack of focus. Uh, looking back on it, there, there wasn't anything that I would have done different, um, as far as pitch sequences or locations or anything like that. Um, it was just, uh, a, a case where, it wasn't my night. Um, yeah. You know, a, a ball, a, a very softly hit ball falls into right field in front of the outfielder um, on a pitch that I thought I executed. And he didn't hit it very hard, but unfortunately it was in the right spot. Um, and, you know, that was the only hit that I allowed. And um, it, it wasn't like I got hit all around the yard or was right. giving up home runs and walking guys and stuff like that. Um, it just, uh, in a way, it, um, looking back on it, um, it, it's not necessarily easy to swallow, but um, it's something that I can move forward from knowing that, you know, I have no regrets about how I went about things. It just didn't work out my way that time. Yeah, you're still you're still pitching in the major leagues. You know, how sad can you really be? <laughs> you still have a wonderful yeah, I mean, beard. Everything's okay. Yes. You know what? That's uh, I finally came to that realization, and that made everything a lot better. I looked at myself in the mirror and saw my beard, and you know, <laughs> I'm in the major league still, so I'll bounce back. Let's talk about the beard for a moment, if we can. Uh, how would you? You know, this is for an audio audience or a radio audience. How would you describe your beard for someone who's never seen it? Oh man, it's 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 awful. Um, <laughs> it, it is. Uh, it's this it's this reddish orange color with hints of blonde um in it and 
is uh, it's entirely too long and wiry, and like the mustache part kind of looks like a Viking almost. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I don't know. It, it was something that we were we were gonna do as a as a bullpen as a unit in 2013 before the season. We were gonna everybody was gonna grow a beard, and I never tried to grow a beard or had anything much more than a stubble. Um, and once it started coming in, and I saw the glorious ginger color that was coming <laughs> through my face, um, I, ha- I, I just had to see where this went. And guys would have maybe a bad outing or, or give up some runs, and they, and they shaved it off pretty quick. But, wow. um, I liked the way that it uh, looked, um, so I kept it. And it's, I, I've had it ever since. And um, I, I've, I've, I've thought about trimming it for the off season mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, regrowing it and, and starting 2015 season with a, you know, a new beard, if you will. But sure. I haven't been, I haven't been able to, to, uh, put the, uh, the razor to the beard yet. So I started growing a beard this past summer for the first time in my life as a, as a joke to my family when we were on vacation, we we're like, it was like a 12 day vacation. And the more I didn't shave it, the funnier it became to me to not shave it. And now it's to the point where no, my wife and my kids no longer think it's funny, but to me it just keeps getting funnier the longer the beard grows. <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely funny. And one of the, the funniest things that I realized as I, um, the longer that I had the beard was you get, you, you've, I, I slipped somehow down this weird rabbit hole of beard culture and I've, you know, you notice other guys that have cool beards. Sure, guys will guys will pass you on the sidewalk and kind of just like give you a nod, like because <laughs> they have a cool beard and you have a cool beard. Um, so it did wonders for my self esteem as well. So that was another reason I kept it. Uh, when I when I saw your beard, I, the first thought I had was ZZ Top's nephew, like not quite <laughs> ZZ Top level, but you know, a younger relative of ZZ Top. Yeah, I don't know if I could let it go that long as ZZ Top. I think that would kind of get in the way um, yeah. while I was pitching. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. I get ZZ Top and uh, and uh, Duck Dynasty. Oh, like sure. But uh, I like the ZZ Top one much better. The, the, other one, the other thing it reminds me of is Dustin Ackley's beard. Dustin Ackley of the Seattle Mariners, center fielder for yep. them. If your beard fought his beard, who would win? Oh, man. Um I think mine would because mine's been around just a little bit longer than his. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's maybe got a little bit more experience. Um, his might be thicker. Uh-huh. His is probably thicker, but mine's like, mine's more wiry. It's got a little bit of more of that, you know, that length to it. And uh, I think it would, uh, it would be a great fight, but I, I think mine would come out on top. Yeah. Did you have a favorite team growing up, a favorite baseball team? Um, you know what? It's interesting. Um, I'm an Air Force brat. My dad was in the Air Force. And when I was a really little kid, uh, I guess between the ages of, uh, three, four, and five, we lived in Northern California. Uh, my dad was stationed at Castle Air Force Base and we had eight season tickets. Um, so that was my first, uh, exposure to baseball. My first major league games ever going to, my first team I ever watched. And, fell in love with was the A's. Um, so it's really cool how things came full circle. Now, um, we moved and, and I grew up primarily in, in New Jersey outside of Philadelphia. And 
you know, I, I grew up a Phillies fan and stuff like that, but, um, but the A's were uh, hardwired in there. They were, they were in the absolutely. back of the mind. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many pictures of me and my brother, who's actually also in the A's organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there's so many pictures of us as kids at, at the Coliseum in Oakland or, or running around the backyard in, in full A's gear. So it's, it's cool how it, it all came together. Now, I understand the A's gave you a chance as a pitcher when uh, when you kind of were on the rocks a little bit as a first baseman because you were originally a first baseman and, and things were things weren't going so well. My minor league career as a hitter got off to a good start, but after a year and a half, uh, I had started getting bit by the injury bug and threw up some roadblocks. I uh, I tore my patella tendon in my left knee twice, and then. At the beginning of the 2011 season, um, I tore a tendon in my in my right wrist, so I knew that I was going to miss all the 2011 season as well. Um, after about a week or so, they came to me and they were like, "Hey, do you want to start throwing just in case?" You know, they they always joked about pitching being my insurance plan because uh-huh. I had pitched in, in college, and uh, the pitching work started to go really well. The wrist would never heal. We had a doctor's appointment at the end of August in 2012, and it looked like I was going to need surgery. And I walked out of the uh, doctor's office and called uh, the A's and asked if I could try to be a pitcher. And a week later, I was. And that was that was August of 2012, and by June of 2013, or no, this was 2011. Okay. And by June of 2012, I was in the big leagues. That's amazing. Like, <laughs> so you had been a pitcher, a full-time pitcher for less than a year, and then you were up with the big team. Yeah, I, w- I did. In 2011, I, I pitched in the last game of the rookie ball season. I went to a fall league, um, had a normal offseason working out as a pitcher for the first time, um, which was really cool. My, my younger brother is a pitcher, also in our organization, and um, I started having to go to him with all these questions, and... <laughs> Um, it was, uh, it was really cool to go through something like that with your younger brother. Sure. Um, but he, uh, you know, I mean, in typical younger brother fashion would give me grief about absolutely every question that I asked him. Um, <laughs> That's his job. Absolutely. He, he was that. on top of it. He took it very seriously. <laughs> so, um, so what are you doing? Um, what are you doing in, in this off season then to get ready for, uh, to get ready for next year? You try to give your body as much rest as you can, um, for example, I won't start throwing a baseball again until uh, around Christmas, probably, mm-hmm. um, towards the end of December. Um, you know, I've, I've been doing some stuff right now, very light stuff, um, just maybe some light cardio and some stretching and some, some yoga. I got into yoga a couple uh, off-seasons ago. Mm. They made it part of our off-season program, and I ended up really enjoying it from then. And I guess about the second week of November, we'll really start getting after it, getting into the weight room five five days a week. Yeah, here's something I've always wondered about uh, about closers because I'll watch baseball and the game's on the line. You're on the mound. How do you not just cry? How do you not just break down <laughs> from the enormous pressure and just cry, cry, cry? <laughs> I would cry. Um, you know what? It's uh. You, you you have to get into a weird place 
to be able to to take the energy that's happening in that ninth inning, especially if you're on the road, and turn it into something that you can harness and use to your advantage. And that was the biggest adjustment um, I feel like that I had to get used to when um, I became the closer this year. So the um, enmity and ill will from the fans in an opposing stadium, you you convert into positive energy for yourself. Absolutely. If you can, if you can take a step back and kind of and slow things down and realize the situation, um, you know, you can because you can't go in there with your hair on fire, being like, "I'm going to strike everybody out and right. the fans up." You can't do that. Um, that'll backfire on That's you. That's the real Mitch quick. Williams uh, approach, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the wild thing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, you it, it, you have to be able to um, to stay to stay calm, and there's there's so much energy and adrenaline that's flowing, and if you can harness that to your advantage, um, you know, and remember the scouting reports and the plan that you have, then uh, you know that should give you confidence if you have the confidence in yourself that you can execute certain pitches and stick to your game plan and throw your pitches with conviction, then, you know, I think a lot more times than not, you're going to have success. Is it fun at that point? I mean, at the heart of it, it's a game. People play baseball for fun. Does it become fun for you, even though it's, it's your job in such an important spot? I think it's fun. Um, I really do. Um, I get incredibly nervous in the bullpen um, every game. Um, as you know, we get closer and closer to the ninth inning. Um, and then it's, it's really weird. Once, once I start warming up, it all, it all goes away. Um, it, 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 at that point, it's, you know, it becomes, it becomes go time, I guess, for lack of a better term. And, um, at that point, once you start warming up, all you want to do is get in the game. I like it. I, I feel like I kind of feed off that energy. You get to you get to play a game. You get to have a lot of intensity. Uh, you you pick up a nice paycheck, and you've got a big fluffy beard. What <laughs> what more could one ask for? I don't know. That sounds pretty good. That's, that's not a bad that's not a bad like, outlay. Hey, Sean, let's like that. yeah, I know, right? Let's uh, let's catch up again in spring training, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. All right, Sean Doolittle of the Oakland A's. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. The defending Super Bowl champion Seattle Seahawks have been making some changes in that they discovered that there was some assholes on their team and they wanted to get rid of them. So they traded away Percy Harvin, who's an asshole, uh, for some conditional draft picks. And if they hadn't gotten that trade, they said they were just going to cut him anyway because they were sick of that asshole. Meanwhile, the team is rumored to be uh, getting rid of Marshawn Lynch, star running back, either this season or certainly at the end of this season, because he, too, is something of an asshole, despite being a hero in the Super Bowl and an outstanding running back. So, you know, I've met assholes. I've met a few people like that. But I wanted to find somebody who wrote the book on it. And so that's why we have Aaron James with us, professor of philosophy at UC Irvine 
author of Assholes, A Theory. Hello, Mr. James. Hi, nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. Um, So we're trying to understand. First of all, I kept thinking from my old broadcasting days, because I I do actual radio shows governed by the FCC as well. So I was thinking, should I call these a-holes? But it doesn't carry the same weight, does it? Yeah, it it expresses something that's really important to us, the moral category. Um, and I think that's that's part of why it has uh, such oomph, the word. When, uh, so your book is Assholes, a Theory. Can you can you summarize what the theory is? The guy, Absolutely. The organizing principle? Yeah. So the the main philosophical idea is just the definition of what it of what kind of person we're talking about when we think that someone is really and truly an asshole. And so my proposal is that we're talking about the guy. It's usually a man, but not doesn't have to be a man who, as I put it, takes special advantages in cooperative life. So maybe he cuts a lot. People are waiting in line. He cuts, takes that special advantage. Where um, the asshole does those things from a uh, what I call it an entrenched sense of entitlement. Um, to those special privileges. So maybe he cuts in line because he thinks he's rich or because he's especially smart or something. You know, it could be different kinds of sense of entitlement. And moreover, he's entrenched in that sense of entitlement so that he doesn't feel he has to listen to the complaints of other people. When so someone says, hey, buddy, there's a line here, get to the back of it, you know, he thinks, you know, piss off. You know, mm-hmm. And uh, he doesn't have to entertain, you know, their complaints or give them an argument, you know, like it's an emergency or whatever. Uh, it feels like he has a right to uh, take special advantages. Um, and so is that just, is an asshole then a narcissist without manners? Uh, no, not necessarily, because some narcissists just have a very low sense of self-worth. They're completely self-absorbed, mm. uh, but they don't act like an asshole in the way we think of it. And similarly, you can have people who asshole, who are assholes who are not um, self-absorbed. I mean, they they do things that they're not entitled to do, taking special privileges for a, a, co- a greater cause that they really believe in, uh, but uh, but doesn't really entitle them to the things that they're doing. Um, so okay. they may not be thinking about themselves, but they're still uh, being an asshole. Uh, uh, so uh, not a narcissist, but but uh, still an asshole. Still an asshole. So if if. Uh the the common conception is oh well they're just acting like an asshole to mask their deep seated insecurities, and a true asshole is acting like an asshole because of his deep seated securities. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, there's maybe different types of proper asshole, but one type is just smug and has a sense of superior. I mean, maybe they think they're a great athlete, they're a great football player. You know, just won a Super Bowl. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I hate assholes like that. And they truly believe in their greatness, and that's, you know, the end of the matter. I mean, or take the shift to entertainment, you know, someone like Kanye West. I mean, I think he truly believes the sort of delusional things that he says about his own sort of godlike greatness. In football, it's really typical for wide receivers especially to be assholes. I'm thinking of Terrell Owens, Michael Irvin, some of these guys. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much you follow football. Is there something to the job of wide receiver that makes these people such assholes? I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't follow football that, that closely, but just thinking back to my, um, you know, being a kid and playing football, I would think that, you know, the wide re- there's a certain amount of glory attached to the wide receiver mm-hmm. because, you know, you'll catch the long pass and, you know, dive or, or run triumphantly into the end zone. And, you know, even though it's really a team effort to get a wide receiver into the end zone, and it, it can't happen without the team, you know, doing it, it's, it's very tempting for the wide receiver to sort of own, you know, own it. You know? Right. <laughs> they do, it's my touchdown, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, to think, you know, 
that it's true that if you know he hadn't caught the ball and he hadn't dodged you know the tackle and he hadn't dove in the right way, they would have gotten in. But it's tempting for him to think that that's really what explains the touchdown, as opposed to you know all the blocking, you know that just happened minutes before, and the you know the, and the throw and you know and all, all that stuff. So he's he tempted to take credit, maybe more credit than um, is, is due. In what kind of setting can someone put up with? people being assholes because it seems like in sports it's probably not all that rare for uh for people on these teams to be difficult to impossible human beings but in the case of the seahawks you have you have a, a group situation where they just weren't going to put up with it anymore when, when does the asshole push the group to the breaking point most of the teams and the assholes that are often on them so they both give and take and sort of in Proportion. If they're going to be taking from the team, like starting fights or having an inflated ego or, right. or you know, being a ball hog or whatever, depending, you know, um, they're going to have to give a lot in, say, scoring, you know, um, as well, or in uh, creating uh, a team spirit or something like that, something that contributes. And the more that they take, the more that they have to give. So um, now it takes a certain often. Uh, the successful asshole, sports asshole, is pretty savvy about not pushing things too far. That is not pushing how much they take beyond how much they give. But in some cases, like I, I take it, um, Percy Harvin's a case. So even though he was giving a lot, you know, as a you know electric player and all that, as yeah. they say, um, what he was taking just all out of portion with it. When you're dealing with somebody like this, is it better to try to? coach them or or treat them, get them out of being an asshole, or is it more a matter of managing their inherent assholisticness? Yeah, I think, well, sometimes you might have a case of like a borderline asshole who sort of has asshole tendencies, but depending on how the other people relate to them, could, um, you know, maybe he might keep the tendencies at bay. But usually the, the players on sports teams that we hear about, you know, we have these vivid contextual details are, are sort of what you might call proper assholes. They're, but they really are entrenched in the view that um, their, you know, special athletic uh, talent and maybe past success, you know, really does entitle them to special advantages and makes them really very, very difficult to get along with. And and those those types of people often just aren't going to change. Um, and so um, there's then a difficult question for the group, for the team, to, of whether or not whether they can work around, you know, the obstacles and the costs they present and whether that's worth it um, or not. But um, generally, I don't think that there's going to be, in those kinds of cases, much of a chance of trying to get, get the guy to change his ways or shape up or, you know, talk him out of it or something like that. So, like, it sounds like there's an asshole ledger for, for everybody. And if you are if you're producing more than you're taking away, then the taking away can be put up with. But if you're if you're operating at a behavioral loss, if you, if you're putting everybody in the red, asshole wise, then that's when you got to go. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's not a strict cost benefit analysis such that you know once you tip negative or whatever, you know, you're out or something like that. Um, I mean, and, and sometimes just a little bit of cooperativeness can go a long way. So people will give you a lot of credit for that. So I think people have to be pretty far into the red, as it were, in terms of their net uh, contribution before people decide, you know, forget it. Aaron James is a professor of philosophy at UC Irvine and author of Assholes, a Theory. Professor James, thanks. Thanks so much. All right. Finally turning to rugby in the European Rugby Champions Cup. It was Wasps 16, Harlequins 23, Benetton Treviso 10, Racing Metro 26, Clement 
Clermont Auvergne, 35 to 3 for the Sail Sharks. 16 for Castres, 21 for Leinster. I don't know if I pronounced any of those right, but now you're up to date on rugby. Home Dunk is part of the Infinite Guest Podcast Network. Be sure to check out our various mini podcasts over at infiniteguest.org. All sorts of delightful sounds to chew on. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Bye now.